0: Today's show is brought to you by Airtable, the all in one collaboration platform. Modern creative teams are pulled in a thousand directions. Maintaining a functional project plan is hard. Wrangling designers and writers, copy edits and clients, all on deadline, can get messy fast. Most collaboration tools aren't made for creatives and creative projects, but Airtable is. Airtable makes it easy to organize stuff, people, ideas, anything you can imagine. That's why leading creative teams at places like Experience Design Agency Huge, Product Development Agency Planetary, and retail brand United Colors of Benetton use Airtable. It's flexible enough to adapt to your process, but powerful enough to keep everything on schedule. And let creative people be creative. Visit Airtable.com Glossy today to get $50 in free credits. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host and Glossy Managing Editor, Hilary Milneys, and joining me today is Tradesy founder and CEO, Tracy Denunzio. Thanks for coming on, Tracy.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. So Tradesy is a peer-to-peer marketplace for reselling and, and buying uh, resold clothes. Is that right? Yes. And can you describe what that industry was like when you founded Tradesy. Obviously, we were, there's now a few players. It's it's becoming a really interesting space to watch how, you know, secondhand consignment has evolved online. Uh, when you, you know, looked in your closet and decided there has to be a better way to do this, uh, what, what else was out there in the industry? Sure.
1: So uh, that was around 2009. And what we had as options were kind of local consignment stores um, and eBay. And at the time, because I I very much am our customer. So at the time, I was pretty good at hunting through local consignment stores, but really wanted more selection. Um, And I was pretty terrible at using eBay, I found it complicated. And confusing, um, I would be concerned about authenticity. And I did a little research and found that uh, most women were viewing the market the same way um, and thought, "Gosh, there's there's got to be a way to connect all of our closets and make it really, really easy um, for us to buy and sell together." Especially with the advent of mobile back then, um, felt like a whole new opportunity, and and it turned out to be to be just that.
0: Right. So, so yeah, you've been in business for, for about 10, 11, or 9 years now? <laughs> uh,
1: almost, which is like 100 years in startup years. Um, but when I started from, from 2009 to 2012, I was operating a, a precursor business to TradeZ that focused primarily on wedding apparel. Uh, and in 2012, We raised our first round of venture capital and launched Tradesy officially, Uh, so that was six years ago, um, and, and expanded to cover the entire fashion category.
0: Yeah, so as more companies have come into the space to kind of take advantage of that, oh, there has to be a better way to do this on mobile, how have you ma- managed to make sure that you are differentiating the business? Like, how did it evolve? Um, and because it's a very, you have to win over both customers and sellers in order for the for the business to work. Yes, exactly.
1: And you're right that there have been, you know, I, I at one point in 2014 or 2015, we had
0: 19
1: venture-backed competitors. So I was not the only person to recognize that this space would be an opportunity, and it became kind of notoriously crowded. Um, Now we're down to a handful um, that have reached a a pretty decent scale and remain in the category. Um, And I think we've been able to survive and thrive uh, by having a a differentiated experience um, where we deliver uh, the easiest selling experience on the side um, and the highest value buyer experience on the shopping side, you can find some of the best deals on TradeZ because our sellers price their own goods for sale and so you'll get you know, women who are just looking to clean out their closet and willing to part with a Chanel bag for $800 um, because that's what it's worth to them in that moment so there's a real treasure hunting component. Uh, and then I think one of the reasons that we've really um, been able to to grow the way we have um in a relatively low cost way compared to the market is that we have strong dual usership meaning we have a lot of buyers who are also sellers and vice versa. Women who use TradeZ to they'll list almost their entire closet for sale. Um hold you can hold on to what you're selling until it sells. So they'll wear things until they sell. And when they sell use the proceeds of those sales to turn around and buy more items from other women's closets on on Tradesy, so it's sort of a lifestyle for our core power users, um, and I think that's pretty unique in the market.
0: Right, and and you say there you have these power users that are really involved in the in the Tradesy ecosystem. Have you made like a, a customer experience that that really applies to them and makes them you know make sure that they don't decide to take their their closets elsewhere?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We have. There are a lot of, um, incentives to when you sell on Tradesy to kind of keep your earnings on the platform, um, and, and re-spend with us. So that tends to keep women in this cyclical commerce behavior where they're selling in order to finance their next purchase. Um, but that said, we've also worked really hard to make sure that if you're interested in just selling or just buying, um, that you also get what we view as the best experience Um, and so that means you get guaranteed authenticity as a buyer and can find the lowest prices with the broadest selection Uh, and as a seller it's just incredibly easy to list it takes less than 60 seconds to create a listing you can just do it in your closet when you're getting dressed in the morning Um, and then we make it very simple to ship and we handle returns on behalf of the seller so that there's no burden after the sale for the seller to handle.
0: Mm -hmm. Hmm, great, and and it's it's interesting because for the business model, it's it's retail, but it's it's like tweaked. Uh, but you, I'm sure you have to watch the customer trends that are happening in retail at large. They want fast shipping. They want a lot of newness all the time. Uh, how do you maintain like or keep an eye on those trends and kind of follow them without? changing the business model because there's still some limitations around like the product inventory that you can control and and just the way that people might shop in in that environment as opposed to a traditional retail store. Yes,
1: absolutely. Peer-to-peer platforms are really miraculous in a lot of ways because they're, there are network effects. They tend to grow very quickly. Um, you get really broad selection of inventory, but they're also difficult in, in other ways, such as standardizing shipping time to meet the expectations of, of buyers who are used to shopping retail. We have you know hundreds of thousands of sellers shipping out items every month, and, um, and it can be challenging to ensure that they all arrive in a time Fashion, um, so that's a constant process. You know, our our mission is to make resale as simple, safe, and stylish as retail at scale, um, and that's a that's a heck of a mission when you think about um, the logistics pieces, especially. So we watch retail trends really, really closely, and then we evolve our peer-to-peer platform in such a way that we can try to match or even improve upon the retail e-commerce experience that our customers are finding on other sites
0: right what's a what's a retail or e-commerce force or customer behavior trend that, that you think had a really big impact on the business over the over the past few years or that you felt you really had to respond to and it and it took the business in a different direction
1: Um, I would say that um, it's not necessarily a recent trend, but I think that um, customers expect a generous and easy return policy, and that's something that for a resale business presents its own unique sets of challenges. So. You can only imagine we're selling pre-owned goods, so you don't have the same um, insurance as you would on a retail good, where you know if, if you can tell if someone wore or used it and then returned it. We don't. We don't have that ability. Um, we have sellers who um, are not equipped to handle returns themselves, and if, and and so we have to step in and handle them for them. So I would say that just meeting the customers' expectations around. Free and easy returns um, is definitely one of the most challenging parts of our business, where we have to be very, very innovative. Uh, and I'm proud that we're able to offer a return policy that does rival a typical retail return policies in terms of convenience and ease and value.
0: Right, and and to do that, how did you grow the company? You know, in 2009, and since where did you focus investment in terms of? resources and talent and and departments like how do you think it how did it evolve that way internally
1: our largest investment is always into tech um what we've built is really a platform um so you see it's it's a really interesting uh, way to look at the category because um Depending on the model you have, if you have a consignment inventory holding model versus a a peer-to-peer inventory model, it requires different kinds of innovation. And for us, most of the innovation is around tech. So we early on invested into building technology that could virtually authenticate product and curate and personalize our, our product catalog, um, which is made up of you know millions and millions of listings created by individual sellers. So it can be challenging to standardize those listings in order to make good recommendations. And we build technology to do that. So I would say in the areas of authentication and curation, we've really been able to differentiate by building those pieces into our technology platform in new ways.
0: Right. And, and what about even getting customers in the door? I, I feel like new brands struggle with this, like, like the direct-to-consumer, digitally native brands, um, but even, you know, traditional companies that are trying to figure out where to put their, their resources to attract new customers. Uh, how did you go about d- just really building that customer base? And where did you have to spend to do that?
1: One of the great advantages of a peer to peer marketplace is that it aggregates inventory very, very rapidly. And that, because it's all user generated inventory. And if you're familiar with how, how customer acquisition works on the internet. It's like the more uh, content you have that people are looking for, the easier it is to um, rank on organic search and the less expensive it becomes to acquire customers via paid search because you have a broad set of products that match exactly what they're looking for. And so we really leaned into that natural advantage of a peer-to-peer marketplace and structured our site in a way that was very, very searchable. And that led to us having well below market customer acquisition costs, as well as uh, a really strong presence on organic search which you can see, you know, if you Google something like Louis Vuitton bags or Chanel bags, you'll see that Tradesy is typically the second result right after the brand on the organic search results. And that's been the case for many years because we intentionally architected the site that way to ensure that we could grow organically. Um, In addition, we just have tremendously strong word of mouth when a woman um, has a good experience on Tradesy, especially if she becomes a dual user, a buyer-seller, she tells her friends. And so most of our growth has been organic. um, And the paid growth that we've driven has been at really, really nice looking economics.
0: Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. Uh, And then when, whenever the customers are, are, might be doing that search, um, you know, how do you approach the customer who might not think like, oh, I can buy this secondhand online. Uh, they might be going and looking to make a new purchase. Um, you know, how often do you think you're, you're bringing in people who didn't have that intention from the, from the first place and how do you get them to stay?
1: Yeah, that's another, um, great advantage of the way that, uh, that search works these days, because if you search for a product in our catalog, you know, for example, that Louis Vuitton bag, let's say, um, you'll get some search results that are paid that include um, product listing ads which display the prices of the items. So if I was looking for a Louis Vuitton Neverfull and I knew that it retails for $900, I'm probably expecting to see that price. And when a tradesy result pops up and it's $400, 400 um, that's pretty exciting. When the buyer clicks through, um, they may it, it says used or pre-owned in a number of places. So they may come to realize that it's pre-owned at some point in looking into the product. Um, and we've found that because the prices are so attractive, there are just so many customers who, who have no issue buying pre-owned. And then we also try to Uh, ensure that we're promoting our messages around why we believe resale is so um, valuable. It's, It's the most sustainable way to shop period sustainable for for um people and the planet sustainable for your wallet it it really just makes good sense um and i think a lot of our customers really get that
0: Mm -hmm. right so how much time do you think is spent trying to to appeal and show here are the benefits of buying um pre-owned versus here's why you should shop tradesy versus another marketplace
1: (laughs) That's a great question and the answer has varied depending on the, the phase of our growth over the years. I think that um, if, if, if we could, I would really only like to promote the concept of resale um, and let customers figure out which platform works best for them. Because I, I started this company and continue to love working at it because I, I really believe that the resale economy especially in this category of fashion, can become as big as the retail economy um, and that there's tremendous benefit in making that happen. So um, when we have the luxury of doing so, we like to focus on general education about resale. Um, But of course, we have a business to run. We have revenue targets to hit. And there are times where we need to be competitive and and lead with our unique value propositions to, to get that
0: customer. I wanted to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. The creative world is constantly evolving and to keep up, you need a tool that's flexible enough to adapt to your process, but powerful enough to keep everybody on the same page. Airtable is modern software. Its fields can handle any content you throw at them, add attachments, long text notes, check boxes, links to records and other tables, even barcodes, whatever you need to stay organized. That's why the team at WeWork needed a tool to manage their entire creative process from ideation to content creation. They turned to Airtable. Airtable empowers you to do your work your way. Try it today. Just head to Airtable.com Glossy to receive $50 in free credits. Now back to the episode. What's it like navigating those goals whenever... Uh, your inventory selection is basically in the hands of the sellers that, that you have working around the site. Um, I know that you guys have a ton of data on what uh, trends are, are happening in fashion, but getting ahead of those trends, how does, how does that work? Like, How do you forecast demand and, and fill it at the same time whenever the inventory is coming from the peer to peer marketplace?
1: Yeah, it's, it's challenging and we're learning as we go and we've got a pretty good handle on it now. Um, so we're able to look at our data and, and see emerging trends anywhere from one month to six months before they start to really peak. Um, so, that means that we get a, a short to moderate amount of time to go out and acquire more inventory within that trend block. Um, so we'll do a number of things. Um, if it's inventory that we know is hard to acquire, we'll provide incentives to sellers for listing those items. We'll reduce the on those items in order to generate listings. Um, we also have a small, we have a program called Tradesy for Business uh, in, in which we have professional sellers who sell high volume Um, Many of them are consignment store owners. Some of them are former consignment store owners who have now uh, shut down their brick and mortar operations and exclusively sell on Tradesy. And they have access on the ground to a lot of closets with a lot of inventory. So we'll also send out notifications to them about what our data says is trending up so that they can go and acquire that inventory.
0: Interesting. What are some things that might be Invent, count as inventory that's hard to acquire, and and what type of incentives would you give for that?
1: So I would say, and this is starting to to slow down now, but for the past few years, there was such a run on everything Gucci. That
0: <laughs> Not the, a big shocker.
1: I mean, it was so it, it, the, the the creativity that come out came out of Gucci over the past few years. It's really it's well earned, um, all of that demand, but because the demand shot up so aggressively. Um, it became a very competitive market for Gucci product. And so we, we did a number of things to ensure that we could fulfill the the demand for that brand, um, including, uh, we did a few promotions to our peer to peer sellers where if they listed Gucci, they would get, um, the the commission would be cut in half. So our commission is 19.8% and we were dropping it down to below 10% for those sellers, um, and so Gucci is one recent example. Um, I would say that certain types of uh, watches are in demand. It's very, very nuanced. It's like r- certain Rolexes, but without any aftermarket stuff. Um, so, sellers that we know, and that's typically professional sellers that are able to acquire that inventory, get special deals on commission as well
0: hmm That, that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, as the evolves, you mentioned, like you can, you can trend forecast as well. And so what does that advantage that the customer data that you have and, and sort of that insight that a standalone fashion brand might not have, what is, what does that give you? And, and do you work with the brands at all to share that?
1: Yeah. I mean, it gives us so much insight that I don't even know if we've fully, um, fully captured yet all of the applications for those insights so just to give you a a high level sense of what it looks like we are probably one of the only platforms if not the only platform on the entire internet that sells every single brand of women's fashion authenticated so you can imagine there are other platforms that have, that, that focus on luxury or, or focus on mass market brands, and they don't have the breadth of brand data that we have. And then you've got like an eBay where they've really improved their authentication standards, and, and it's not a knock to eBay. I think they do a good job now. But historically, um, because they didn't have an authenticity policy, the historical data about, you know, again go to the brand Louis Vuitton, they're not able to look back and understand true market dynamics because of the presence of, of replicas. So mm-hmm. so we just have that incredibly broad view, which means that our Trend forecasting, I believe, is the most holistic and inclusive of all of the various trends that are happening in the market. Um, so we'll be able to see not just trends around a particular brand becoming more or less popular, but trends around certain looks, like um, the early two thousands. You know, we've been hearing for a few years. There've been these little murmurs that that's a trend that's coming back. That sort of early two thousands logo mania vibe. Um, we didn't see that in our data. And then all of a sudden, uh, for the last three months, we've seen it. And, and a Dior saddlebag has gone up in price by 50%, whereas and the demand has gone through the roof. Um, so we can now genuinely say hey, that trend is coming back among a real audience. Uh, And I think in the future, that will be very useful to brand partners. We don't have any formal brand partnerships right now, but we do have friendly relationships with a couple of major brands, and we share data with them um, pretty generously because we we want to be helpful to the industry at large.
0: Right. And are, are there any brands still, though, that you feel were maybe unfriendly for a time or, or that you kind of had to explain like what what you guys were doing? Because it's, it's kind of this new middleman that, you know, it's not just your average, uh, you know, local consignment boutique that has this pool of local customers, but you're opening up closets uh, kind of limitlessly with with the Internet. And so how did you kind of have to, to to coach these brands on, on what that meant for them?
1: Yeah, look, there's a natural tension there for sure. Um, Many of the luxury brands... um, build their brand around systems of exclusivity, um, and limited availability. So, you know, everyone knows you can't just, you know, walk into an Hermes store and get a Birkin. Um, they are intentionally scarce. And when you have a really robust secondary resale market, it diminishes the scarcity of that product, which could, diminish the brand equity or the value of the product at retail. Um, What we've found since launching Tradesy six years ago is that for our customers, both buyers and sellers, their retail spend actually increases once they find that there's a secondary market option. So it's a lot easier to buy a $10,000 bag knowing that you can sell it for 70 or 80% of that uh, than it is to buy it and imagine that there's no um, liquidity for it. So mm-hmm. I think the brands are, and this is not unique to us. I think all of the resale platforms have seen the same behavior. And so I think the brands are are starting to soften to the idea that having a robust secondary market is actually an asset for them. It proves the value. You know, women are, we're, we're, smart and always getting smarter, right? So um, you we, we don't sell you know cars without also talking about how they're going to retain value. And I think it's really important to respect women's financial prowess by selling them luxury goods and also being able to prove that those goods can retain value and be a good financial decision. So I think from that angle, the brands are starting to get it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so, I also want to talk. You guys recently, I guess, in the last few months, um, acquired a cl- kind of a digital closet sorting company called Fits. Uh, can you can you explain that that connection? Why you thought that was a good fit for Tradesy?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, we, because we cover the whole spectrum of product from kind of mass market to ultra luxury, um, we've been looking at behavior at the ultra luxury tier of the market. And we see that while the peer-to-peer model works really beautifully for most sellers, there is a, a seller customer who wants a higher touch service, who wants someone to come to their home, um, go through their closet with them and, and help them through the process of selling. And so we were thinking about, well, gosh, we, we'd we love to provide that to customers, but we want to make sure that we're doing it in a way that is healthy for our business um, and profitable, and that also delivers extra value beyond what's currently available in the market. And so we connected with FITS. Um, so FITS was a, a very young startup, less than a year old, being run by Alexandra Wilkes-Wilson, who was a founder at Guilt Group and Glam Squad. Um, and we started talking about how the service they provided, which is a closet organizing and personal styling service, could be a really exciting add-on to an in-home concierge resale service um and uh, over a few months we just got so excited about the idea of working together and building on top of their existing product that we decided to acquire the company Um, alexandra joined our board and we are we've launched in new york city um where we're running very organically right now but we have plans to invest very heavily into the growth of that business in 2019
0: Right. Yeah. It seems like as well as as much as um, online consignment really opens up the inventory and and creates a much more robust uh, options for customers um, that are dealing in that market. There's still like those personal um, offline touches, like like a personal stylist or concierge, um, as well as I think you guys opened a showroom or testing that physical retail. How do you make sense of the, you know, off on offline to online? Like what, what then goes back offline and, and how do you navigate that?
1: I mean, I did, I don't know. I would pose the question right back to you. I think it's <laughs> I think it's a really, um, I don't think anybody has the answer to this. Um, but you've got to be uh, in the game testing and learning. So we found, um, early learnings from our showroom, uh, were that, um, it was great for, um, branding, just having a storefront, even if people don't come into, it seems to create some lift around that geography. So that was a really interesting learning for us. Um, being here in LA and having our showroom in LA, we found that the most valuable use of the space and the time was actually to work with our influencer and celebrity clients. Um, because not only do we make sales in that space, but we get this incremental promotion via their, their social media that's incredibly valuable. Um, so we're learning. For us, that's how offline is currently working. We plan to test more showrooms in different cities and we're also learning about uh what what it's like to go into our customers homes and closets and and provide a full concierge service and so far um while that operation is still pretty small our nps from customers is close to 100 meaning um when when asked how much they like this it's it's a resounding we like it a whole lot so that's pretty good
0: like because i imagine there's so many logistical things like you mentioned the technology everything has to work properly it has to be seamless experience um you have to make sure you have your trend forecasting, right. But how does, where does the tradesy brand get built in all of that? Uh, You know, how do you, you mentioned working with influencers, having an offline presence now. Uh, How do you build a brand that people can recognize or that people are attracted to whenever you're working on so many things and dealing with with an inventory that's pre-owned and and is peer-to-peer?
1: I think that is such a good question. And it's one that we've been thinking about a lot recently because when we launched, um, our thesis was that Tradesy didn't really need to be its own super strong brand. We thought that we were a platform, and that the brands we sold should be the focus of that platform and I I think that in 2012 and 2013 that that was the right approach Um, now six years later our customers very different our customers primarily millennial women um who we know from um, from talking directly to them and also from kind of general information out there that this customer really values a brand um, and wants to spend their dollars and their time on a platform that is built by a brand they care about. So I think we've, um, through a bunch of different mechanisms, including the customer experience for buyers and sellers. We've started to tell our story a little bit more. you know, how we're built by and for women, how we believe in sustainable consumption and in buying higher quality goods that last longer, and seems to really be resonating. Um, But like everything, it's it's evolving. And and we have plans to uh, further differentiate and emphasize our own tradesy brand uh, going forward.
0: Mm -hmm. Great. And uh, as we're, we're almost out of time, but for Next up, you mentioned, you know, you're investing in technology. Customer data obviously plays such an important part of the brand. What's the next thing that you see going that's going to play a big role in in development and investments going going forward? Well,
1: we've got, we're a big company now, so there are many things happening on all fronts, but there's one product that I'm really excited about that's going to release in alpha very soon. Um, And it's a predictive listing experience that uh, uses image recognition to allow you to very simply take a photo of the item you want to sell. And we will be able to recognize what it is, fill in the product details, recommend a price, um, and we'll just have to ask you a question or two about condition and whether you approve of the price. From there, that um, predictive listing experience will also give you the option to set dynamic pricing so that when we see supply and demand fluctuate and fair market value changing, um, you'll be able to give tradesy permission to lower and increase your price in order to make your item sell more quickly. And then, finally, the last piece of that project, which won't release immediately but will be coming soon, is that we'll be able to use the image recognition not just to take a photo of what you want to sell in your closet – but also to scan any item you see anywhere. So if you're on the subway and you see a woman's bag that you really love, you can focus your camera on it. We'll be able to tell you not just what it is, but how much it retails for and how much it resells for and connect you with product on Tradesy and on other platforms uh, if you want to get that bag. So that's going to be really interesting. Um, to be able to walk around on the street and and learn about what everyone else is wearing at that level of detail,
0: yeah, that's exciting. And and so, just to wrap up, what level of control versus automation do you think that both buyers and sellers on the on the platform want? How do you how do you kind of balance the two? Because I'm sure there are, that you encounter both.
1: I mean, I think that the customers just want the experience that they want. Um, Whether or not, whether it's manual or automated on our end. But from so, so meaning they just want an authenticity guarantee. They don't, I don't think they're as concerned about how we get there, or they just want to be connected with the right product at the right price, um, whether we do that in a manual or automated fashion. But of course, for us as a business, um, automating many of these key marketplace functions is not just better business for us because it makes our our business more profitable and efficient, um, but also really Helps us to become a thought leader in peer to peer economics um, because we're solving for things that previously kept uh, individuals from transacting with each other. And mm-hmm. so automation for us as a business is, is really, really highly valued.
0: Great. Uh, awesome. Well, excited to see what comes up next. Um, thank you so much for, for joining us. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Hillary, as did I. All right. Uh, Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. And in the meantime, be sure to follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Anchor FM, and leave us any feedback you have.